Thanks for leading us, you guys. Appreciate that. Uh, as I begin, let me just say a couple of things just unrelated to the sermon, but one is a series of thanks, and I'll kind of consolidate them this way by saying, listen, many of you this week have stepped into roles that are typically done by other folks, Ian especially, and Carlton, who helped out in the uh, absence of the shepherds traveling this week, so Ian, thank you for doing that. Um, and Carlton for working on our slides and presentation, thank you. And the other is just two words of greeting, specific greetings. Uh, we're, we're visited this morning by our director of missions, our associational missionary, Dan and his wife, Dan Hyde. I'm grateful for you. Um, Bill and I sat with Dan Hyde a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, well before the church was born and visited and began to pray about uh, the prospect of planting a church here. So we're we're grateful for your help in that. The other is a special word of just greeting. Um, oftentimes you have heard me reference a text message that I get every Sunday morning from a dear friend and brother, a uh, elder of a church across town, downtown actually of Sojourn Church. Um, and I'm just grateful to have you guys here visiting and checking in on us. Mark and Anita Luazo, you're my honored guest and dear friends, and I'm, I'm grateful for you. Um, I could... Uh, I could get emotional thinking of the times when your verses and text on Sunday mornings uh, play deep impact in my heart. So thank you for your friendship. Um, with that said, let me invite you to turn to uh, Psalm chapter 51 as we begin to wrap up not only this psalm, but our series in psalms. So I've entitled this, this portion, this conclusion of Psalm 51 is God's work of renewal and restoration. You'll see that on the screen as will you see where we're going to kind of spend the bulk of our time together. So let me just jump in by saying this. That this will state the obvious for you. But for the Christ follower who's been saved by faith alone in Christ alone, the power of sin has been broken. But as all of us believers can testify, the presence of sin still remains. We are all prone to sin. As the hymn says, we are all prone to wander. And with our sin comes the effect of that sin. Damaged relationships, loss of peace, loss of joy, loss of intimacy between us and the Lord. As far as that goes, just loss in general. Sin promises gain. It delivers loss. It leads us to conceal. It leads us to avoid the light. It leads us to distance ourselves from other believers and it it certainly hinders our intimacy with God. Now, King David knew all about this, the effect that sin has on a child of God. He was skilled in covering up his sin, right? We, we look back in 2 Samuel and we read the history of what took place between Bathsheba and, and, and David and David's interaction with her husband. But he was, he was skilled at covering up sin. He was skilled at justifying his sin, ignoring his sin, and even like many of us, oftentimes trying to live a normal life with unconfessed sin. But he also knew, and that's what I want to kind of zero in on for a second, he also knew the loving kindness and forgiveness of God. David knew much about the mercies of God. Hear that loud and clear for a second. Think about it. God had anointed him king while he was yet still a young shepherd, right? 
He had provided him with the victory against the giant, Goliath, and other enemies of God. He had brought prosperity to his kingdom when he became king. And he had promised him that someone would always occupy the throne from his lineage, from his line. He had also received mercy. Mercy that we referred to last week. But mercy when he had been confronted with the sin of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder against her husband. And in a six-word confession, heard only by God and the prophet Nathan, his sin had been put away, and he avoided the death penalty that he deserved. I'll reference 2 Samuel just for a moment. Chapter 12, verse 13 says this, David said to Nathan, here's the six words, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. He knew much about the mercies of God. Now great mercies call for great songs. And Psalm 51 is a great song written by a great sinner. For generations after David, including right then when he was living and all the generations beyond, including us, They would sing this song, Psalm 51, and they would learn, though their sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So again, I remind you that Psalm 51 provides us, believers, children of God, with the roadmap to restoration. It it provides us a roadmap to renewal before God through authentic and humble confession. So let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask for His help as we walk through this passage and as we submit our hearts to Him to receive the Word deeply implanted. Let's let's pray together. Search us, O God, and, and know all of our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See, Lord, if there be any grievous ways in us and lead each of us in the way of everlasting. To that end, Lord, I ask that you would help us see this great song as not just David's song, but as our song. Help me preach this morning to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start out by reading the first six verses of this chapter by way of review from last week. And I'll touch on the following verses as we come to it in the Scripture. This is the Word of the Lord, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
Now, two weeks ago, when I was last in Psalm 51, we focused on these six verses, and then I stressed that conviction of sin is a gift of God. God produced conviction precedes forgiveness. And it's evidence of His kindness because it leads us to confession and it leads us to repentance. And as we saw two weeks ago in that message and from these six verses, David's initial response was to throw himself upon the mercy of God. And in so doing, he, he owned his own sin. He acknowledged the weight of his sin and he, he grasped the fullness and the greatness and the bigness of God. So my goal this morning as we move forward is really just to offer you four handles, four different things that'll, that, that come right from the heart of this psalm to help show us the things that David requested from God after his initial confession of sin. So that we'll get them as they appear. Basically, in order of appearance from this text, right? These four handles are these. Purge. Sing, which is my word, not from the text, but it, I'll show it when we get to it in verse 8. Purge, sing, hide, and create. Purge, sing, hide, and create. I want to remind you that the dominant theme of Psalm 51 is not sin. It's grace. And according to His steadfast love in abundant mercy, God will graciously work these four handles into us, the believer, as we humbly confess sin before Him. So let's look at these one at a time. The first is purge. See it from verse 7. And I want you to see that, I mean, David continues to request God's forgiveness and cleansing as he did in the opening verses. Look back at what we just read, verses 1 through 3. He had asked God to blot out his transgressions, wash him thoroughly, and to cleanse him from sin. Ironically enough, those same three words will be used in verses 7 and 8, but in reverse order, okay? So now he's using those same words, but now not only is the order different, but now each is coupled with a confident expectation of future grace, right? That's why you see language like, and I shall be clean, and I shall be whiter than snow. Okay, so I want you to have that future tense in mind as we go through this, because from verse 6, God has done a sanctifying work in David. And his delight and desire is to do that sanctifying work in us as well, right? So look at verse 6 on our way to 7. Verse 6. David acknowledges God's desire, or the language of my version, in what God delights, right? So see, behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. That's what God delights in. I like to read the commentator Derek Kidner, especially in the Psalms. And Derek Kidner writes that there is a gulf that exists between what God desires and what David has just confessed. You see his desire in verse 6. You see what he confessed in verses 1 through the latter part of 5. And then you see God's desires. Derek Kidner points out that God's wishes, his desires, his delights, 
as it says in verse 6. God's wishes are intentions. Desiring truth, God teaches wisdom. See that language? Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the sincere heart. Now, technically, the latter part of 6 through 8 are all future tense verbs that you and I can rely upon with confident expectation in future grace. So in other words, we could read this, and you will teach me wisdom in the secret part. God will not deplore the absence of wisdom, but He will graciously teach it to the believer who seeks it. I want you to catch that. It's part of His restorative work in us to to transform us from the inside out. And He's done that work in David, right? And now David has his request coupled with this confident expectations. And if I could just throw a stake in the sand here, I would say this, and you can too, by God's grace and the power of His Word and the abundant loving kindness that He expresses to His children. Verse 7, if you're going to take notes on this, underneath that word purge, you might write this one sentence. I've got a sentence for every word, but, but this is this. Trust the Lord to remove your stain of sin. Trust the Lord to remove your stain of sin. And in parentheses in my notes, I actually have the word you can. <laughs> Chris, you can trust the Lord to remove your stain of sin. Notice verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, he writes, and I shall be whiter than snow. So this verse breaks down, obviously, into two parts and I'll, I'll touch on them one at a time. The first is this. Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. What in the world is hyssop? Sounds like hiccup. It's not. By using the term hyssop, David's alluding to how hyssop was used, and, and this is interesting to note, hyssop was used as an instrument of application. Kind of like think of a paintbrush on a canvas. But it was used as an instrument of application in the deliverance of ritual, in deliverance and ritual cleansing, I should say. Back in Leviticus 14, when, when we read through the law and the 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 instructions that God gave for right living throughout the land, you can also read the cleansing process that someone was to go through that was being healed from leprosy. The process involved, and I won't kind of go into all the details of this, it it is an interesting read beginning right there. at uh, um, It's in Leviticus 14. It's also in Numbers chapter 19. But but the process involved sacrifices that were brought to the priest along with a bunch of hyssop. And I don't mean a lot, but a, a gathered plant of some sort. It, it, it's hard to, for me to get clarity on exactly what this meant or looked like. But it was, it was kind of a grassy, leafy, twiggy thing. And the end of it had kind of a brush-like substance. And you would take all of those things and combine them together and wrap them with a um, scarlet cord. And you'd bring those to the priest along with your sacrifice. And, and among other things prescribed 
by God, the priest would dip the bunch of hyssop in the blood of the sacrifice and then sprinkle the blood seven times on the one that came for cleansing. Now, Scripture had introduced us to hyssop before Numbers and before Leviticus because it used it as the instrument of application of the blood over the doorways and lintels during the time of Exodus when the Passover lamb had been sacrificed by each family and then with the bunch of hyssop, they would dip that into the blood of the sacrificed lamb and, and paint the blood over the doorpost so that the death angel could pass over them. Having been slaves for hundreds of years, God heard their cry, intervened with deliverance, and gave them the method by which He would rescue them while taking care of their enemies. And they were to take that hyssop, dip it in the blood, and paint the blood over the doorpost, and they would be saved, delivered. Maybe David's referring to both of these. Maybe the cleansing aspect of uh, how a leper was to go through the process and steps along with the priest to, to get to a point of cleansing. Maybe he's referring to the um, Exodus time where the hyssop is used as an instrument to paint the blood over the doorpost. And maybe it's both accounts that he's referring to. Because both speak to deliverance that would have been impossible without God, right? Now on this side of the cross... Fast forward through history to where we are sitting in this room here at Redeemer Fellowship this morning. We know the rest of the story that the Holy Spirit was intending as he led David to pen this great song. Hebrews chapter 9, 22 says, Indeed, under the law, everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And David is referring to the application instrument, the blood that would have been used to cleanse a leper because even he himself was alienated from his people, even if only in his own heart. And he's pleading out for mercy. Purge me, descend me by, by taking hyssop and cleaning me so that I can be clean. Can I remind you of the point? You today who struggle with sin of any kind, you can trust the Lord to remove your stain of sin. Can I offer you this invitation, this gospel invitation? Run to your high priest, who is Jesus, and ask him to purge you of your sin by applying his cleansing blood to your life and your heart. You can trust him to make you as white as snow. And that's how verse end, verse 7 ends. With the beautiful words of promise, wash me and I will be white as snow. Interestingly enough, I took my family on a, I, I was speaking in the Dominican for two weeks back in uh, the spring of 2020, right? So weeks before March of 2020, when the pandemic knocks on all of our doors, I've got them in the Dominican Republic for two weeks, which you would think will be awesome. But what that meant is we missed the one snowstorm of a, not storm, but snowy dusting of a decade that happened in Chattanooga. And while we're there, our kids are seeing pictures coming across the uh, screen and phones that everyone else is enjoying snow back in Chattanooga. They're saying, Dad, 
Some of my greatest memories as a child involved looking out my home where, where I was raised out the window on the morning of a fresh snow. And I'd look through that window up the hill and all I could see, instead of the, the ruts where our bicycles made trails in our backyard and, and just the, the old cobblestone little fence thing that would kind of line the way up that place and all the way up to the neighborhood, all I could see was white. And that white was a picture of crisp beauty. And I would not only love to see the sight, but I would also love to hear the silence as we would take walks up through there. And you can attest, right? That whiteness remains until it's broken and marred by footsteps, or in, in the case of a home with four boys, sleds, which did not leave that looking white and crystal clear for very long. But this image of clean restoration is what David wants us to visualize as the result of being washed and cleansed by God through Christ of sin. His cleansing is total. No faded stains remain. My favorite golf shirt has a little round dot right here. And it's probably a place where I was trying to eat a hamburger while I was driving the car and a little bit of maybe a little grease dot or something popped in there and no matter how hard we've tried to get rid of it, evidence of that hamburger remains on the front of my golf shirt. And whether it's stubbornness or just my love of the shirt, I refuse to retire the shirt. But every time I put it on, you can see the evidence. There is no evidence of remaining stain. When we confess humbly before the Lord, of our sin. He purges and He washes. And you can trust that to happen. Second word I offer you will not take as long, but I want to share it with you from verse 8. And that's the word sing. Sing. Look at this for the second handle. The sentence under the word sing is similar to the first, but it's this. Trust the Lord to let you hear joy. Although I'm going to address this in brief, it could be the content of an entire sermon of affirming gospel culture in our church. Listen to this verse. David cries out, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The one reason I'm going in the direction that I'm taking us this morning in verse 8 as opposed to just concluding that David is asking that joy be returned to his life as a result to confess sin, is he specifically asked for that in verse 12. I think something else is going on here in verse 8. And I'm highlighting verse 8 because one effect of sin is that it seems to cause people to draw away from other believers instead of running to their church and they, they probably draw away instead of running in for fear of being shunned or, or shamed or condemned. David had lived with the secret of his sin for, in large part for the last nine months. And now by God's grace, through the conviction which was a grace, he confessed that before the Lord in this six-word confession. And now he's walking in the light. He longs to hear the reception of people 
Not people that are tolerating or being accepting of his sin, but celebrating his forgiveness and walking alongside him in the process. He longs to hear joy and gladness from being reunited, mask-free. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus taught that there is no greater, there is great rejoicing in heaven over one who repents. And I would just say, as I jump to the next word here, that I'm praying that this prayer may, may, may Redeemer foster such a strong gospel culture so as to welcome honest discussions about struggles with sin. And may we foster such a strong gospel culture as to celebrate with each other when the fruit of our conviction, and in verse 8, it comes in the form of broken bones, when that leads us to forgiveness and growth in Christ-likeness. One of the fruits that I pray become a reality in our D groups is not just that we're studying together. Not just that we're encouraging one another in the gospel. Not just that we're studying the Bible together. But that it is the inroad and beginning places of vulnerability and honesty between believers who, who don't want other believers to placate sin, but where they can honestly tell each other what they're praying for to walk in deliverance and forgiveness as a result of confession. For this culture to be fostered, we must all, both the Davids of Psalm 51 or 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Nathans, we must all resolve to press in and refuse to check out. Third word comes from verse 9 and it's hide. Hide. The sentence with this one, if you want to write this down, is this. Trust the view-blocking presence of Jesus. Trust the view-blocking presence of Jesus. Let me explain. Here's what the verse says. David, David cries out this, hide your face from my sins. And then he says, and blot out all my iniquities. This is the third of those words that we saw in verses 1 and 2. This is now the, which was the first word in verse 1. Now it's the third here. Listen, in one sense, it's right to understand this verse as an echo of what David had been asking all along, right? Verses 1 and 2, blot out my transgressions according to your steadfast love. But asking God to hide his face from his sins, that makes sense to me, but it also seems extreme. Think about this. To have the Lord's face shine upon you was equivalent to a straight line blessing from Him. Thus the ironic blessing, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. Now all of a sudden, David's saying, hide your face from my sins. Jesus Himself felt the pain of the Father turning His face away from Him unable to look upon his sin as he bore I'm sorry his son as he bore our sin the father turned his face away resulting in Jesus's agonizing cry my god my god why have you forsaken me maybe this was one of the most crushing aspects of Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross 
I would contend we are right to look below the surface of David's request here because we have had the finished work of Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, His atoning death through the Gospel. We've had that revealed to us. Right? In John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes these words. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if you do sin, by, when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Listen, you and I, we need something to block God's view of our sin. And God has provided that something in the person of Jesus. It's not like David's asking him, God, to play peekaboo like a, a cosmic grandfather with their, his sins. David finds himself in his version of an already not yet. He has experienced God's grace and kindness of, of what He's done for His people even generations before in providing a Redeemer, a, 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 a sacrificial lamb to have the blood of that applied over them so they could have freedom. But He's not yet, and He won't in His lifetime, experience the fullness of that sacrificial lamb being offered as a, an atoning sacrifice for all people. Similarly, us. Those of us who are in Christ, we have received God's forgiveness. Our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. But the presence of sin still remains, as I said early. And we all have this need to run to our shepherd, to run to our priest, Jesus, who is our intercessor, our, our advocate before the Father. So that when God looks down upon us, the redeemed, he sees not our sin, but He sees the sinless perfection of His Son. So when you cry out in confession and you own your sin and you're, you, are, you are seeing God rightly in His holiness and you're desiring to walk that way, but you know once again, like Paul in, 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 Ro in Romans chapter 7, I've blown it again. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I, I want to do, I don't do. And you plead your, your case before the Lord, crying out for mercy. Trust the view-blocking presence of Jesus. What gives us the right to do that? For our sake, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, He made Him to be who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Hide. Third, fourth and final word that I want to share with you as we close with the last of these four handles is the word create. This fourth word comes from verses 10 and 12 and I combine a lot of things in conclusion here. But the sentence I offer you is to do this, to trust the Lord to do a miraculous work in you. Trust the Lord to do a miraculous work work in you. Listen to verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
The word create here in verse 10 is the same word that we're all familiar with from the Genesis account, whereby through the power of God's spoken word, everything that was made came into being. In Genesis, God's creative power came about in a moment. In Psalm 51, God's creative power comes about as a process, right? We are all in the process. Every one of us who are in Christ, believers, we are all in a process of transformation whereby we are becoming, Lord willing, conformed into the image of Jesus more and more. And by God's grace, the believer, the believer is given a brand new heart when they are saved. Instantaneously. The old heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh with new desires so that what God delights in they delight in. And this newness brings joy that is, that is unrivaled by any earthly or fleshly desire that the world may have to offer. David had known that joy, but he had experienced the fading of that joy as a result of his sin. As will we. If we take our sin lightly, and if we leave it unconfessed, but we need not live there. Can I encourage you and encourage us? Follow David's lead when graced with godly conviction. Confess your sin and submit to the process of his creative power in making your heart clean. You can trust the Lord with this miraculous work. This creative, miraculous work. Here's what it results in. We won't talk about it long, but they're right there in the passage. It results in a renewed spirit within you. It results in a restoration of joy. And it results in this. And this is key for our growth in Christ. And what a great preface for us to walk into the study of Ephesians next week. It results in Him, God, sustaining you with a willingness to delight in the things in which God delights in. Don't gloss over the word willing here. Restore to me, verse 12, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This word speaks of an enthusiastic and a voluntary desire, a God-graced desire to live a holy life. But in the same way that the Genesis 1 creation account teaches us that you and I, humans, we can neither create nor sustain life on our own, this Psalm 51 creation process that David is teaching generations and generations to sing, it teaches us that we cannot sustain a willing spirit on our own. So as we grow up in Jesus... God is producing in us as we submit to the Spirit, as we sit up under the Word, as we commune with Him, as we meditate on Scripture, as we, we run from sin and run toward righteousness. God is producing in us the antidote to temptation. And that antidote is finding great delight in His will. I want to let it kind of land there for a moment and conclude with 
this. It's really a prayer of my heart. May David's song in Psalm 51, his open confession, these four handles, and even what he continues to pray beyond this would be the result of this. May his song be our song. And may his affirmation that he wrote 11 chapters earlier in chapter 40, verse 8, may it be ours as well. Would you hear these words of Psalm 40, verse 8 as I close? David said, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's the creative, transformative work that the Spirit wants to do in each of us. That, that fosters in us a distaste for the things of the world as we grow more and more in Jesus. If you're in the middle of, of sin in the moment, can I invite you to run to Jesus? Plead that case before Him. And trust Him to do that miraculous work. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the desire that You are putting and growing in each of us to live a holy life before You, to offer our lives as living sacrifices. Lord, thank You for this song that has shown us that David's song of restoration and repentance is our song. Thank You that you moved in his heart and worked such a work of teaching him, his, him wisdom that he went from a six-word confession to laying out this primer for us to follow. And may we follow it, Lord. Continue to move in us in such a way that, that motivates us to run from sin and run toward righteousness. And in that process of you growing us up, Lord, please continue to grace us with conviction and move in our hearts that would lead us to authentic confession. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.